0: Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic O'Brien, your host for this growing collection of interviews. I'm recording this at the end of April 2020, as we're still in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. I live in New York City, which was hit really hard, but finally the curve has flattened, so things are totally normal here now. Totally normal. You know, I wear a mask when I go out, I wipe down my groceries before I bring them to my apartment. It's totally normal. Now, I don't know how much longer it will take to come out of this or when we'll be performing on the street and hanging out with each other again, but I do hope that this podcast gives you at least a virtual experience of hanging out and sharing stories. Now, in this episode, a performer new to the streets, Isaac Giardin, reached out to me in September of 2019 wanting to contribute to the podcast. He had been street performing in Key West and was keen to capture stories from the regulars who worked the pitch. He's only been on the street for two years, but he's been performing for 10. He has an entertainment company in Canada, as well as being one of the founders of Prairie Circus Arts and the Winnipeg Circus Club. He decided to leave it all behind and learn how to street perform. He met up with David and Tobin at the Red Trousers Show at the Asheville Mountain State Fair in Asheville, North Carolina, where he is working as an assistant for a touring illusionist, but he first met them working the pitch in Key West. In this conversation, Dave and Tobin share their history together beginning in first grade when they first met. They run through their background with various circuses before they hit the streets doing their first shows in Burlington, Vermont. They talk about how going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival changed their show, the inequality of the system at the Pitch and Key West, their philosophy on street performing, and the thoughts on the future of our craft. And that's just in the first five minutes. Enjoy!
1: Hey everybody, my name's Tobin Rennick. I'm part of the Red Trouser Show. And my name is David. I'm also part of the Red Trouser Show.
2: Yeah, and uh, my name's Isaac, I'm sitting down here in uh, Asheville, North Carolina with the Red Trousers. What uh, what got you guys started in uh, in this field? You've been together a
1: while, as I understand it. Yeah, we've been together, I mean, we've known each other since we were in first grade. Okay, uh, so, alright. Yeah, in the States, that's about uh, six or seven years old. Alright. Um, and we started juggling when we were ten. Okay, so, okay. Yeah part of uh circus school or uh no actually just our elementary school they had a, a circus program oh that's cool. cool um starting it was actually a new gym teacher that arrived to our school in fifth grade jackie davis yeah and she was a professional mime she studied under marcel marceau mm-hmm. um, was a was and is a fantastic performer that's quite own, the gym right? teacher yeah um so we were very lucky in that regard. So when she came to the school, my dad taught at the school as well. He was the eighth grade class teacher at the time. Himself and the seventh grade teacher, they were trying to figure out something to do with uh, the kids in the long winters up in New Hampshire, like everyone going stir crazy indoors. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So and then once Jackie arrived, they're like, "Let's do a circus." <laughs> and so uh, Jackie took that on and um, started every year from. That point forward, the seventh and eighth grade class would perform uh, a circus show each winter. That's great. That's awesome. So you've been
2: uh, you've been working together then since uh, since you were ten. You, you, how old are you guys now? Uh, I just turned thirty five. Okay, i thirty five. Very young. <laughs> shortly, <laughs> thirty four. Thirty four. Okay. Well, the the years matter at this point, right? Yeah. That's great. So what? Um, after learning juggling, like, uh, I've seen your show down in Key West, and you're definitely one of the more technically skilled shows out there, uh, you built it out from there, tell me about that. Uh, you do
3: acrobatics, of course, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, Yeah, I mean, after that initial sort of inspiration from Jackie Davis, you know, and that got us unicycling and, and juggling, uh, we then heard about uh, a youth circus group called Circus Smirkus, which is based okay. out of northern Vermont. Yep. And they have a summer camp program, so the summers after, must have been uh, 6th and 7th grade, we went up and did their summer camp, which is like a week or two-week program in the summer. And the coaches there at the camp saw that we were so into circus and recommended that we audition for the Circus Smircus Touring Show, which we did the following year. So the summers after 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, we were on the touring show. And there was a lot of really high-level coaching there and, you know, coaches from Russia and Mongolia and all over the place, oh, you know, cool. with, with, that's where we got a lot of our more in-depth coaching and and circus know-how came from that experience. Okay, okay. How long
2: did uh, you tour doing that then?
3: Well, I mean, so we did those five years through high school, mm. touring every summer with Circus Smirkus, and that would be... You know maybe two and a half three weeks of training and then we would do 70 or 80 shows all around england uh in a circus tent and then after high school we probably kept doing circus work for another two two and a half years yeah um
1: at, at which point uh, uh, mostly we were just like in amusement park circus shows though so okay. it wasn't like We didn't quite make it into the real circuses. We were in one nice, uh, smaller, real circus in Chicago called the Midnight Circus,
3: and they have a great company that's still going uh, today. Okay. Yeah. Um, Really fun shows out there. We spent a bunch of time out in Chicago living and just training a ton. Not, you know, we'd do the occasional shows and mm -hmm. gigs, but we would basically just all share one big house. We were part of a four-person club passing act at the time. (laughs) And we would all go in on a house together and live super cheap and just train like four, five, six, seven, even up to like nine hours just of training. We didn't spend any money or do anything else. We just practiced and <laughs> yeah, first train, right,
1: first winter. So we were nineteen. the The directors at Circus Smirkus, uh, Jeff and Julie, they were also uh, they owned and ran the Midnight Circus in Chicago Okay. so we'd made that connection with them through Circus Marcus and uh, they knew we wanted to start performing full time so they hired us uh, to come out and do what was uh, the Halloween show the city of Chicago okay. uh, put up a bunch of money because Mayor Daley, his favorite holiday is Halloween <laughs> and so he always like put a ton of funding towards Halloween and they threw this huge Halloween party downtown and For three weeks, we did, I think, like, 80 shows. They were just short, half-hour circus shows, but we were doing, like, three shows a day, Monday through Wednesday, and then five shows a day, Thursday through Sunday. Yeah, you're putting in the hours there, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was ridiculous, and oftentimes freezing cold, uh, because you're down there in the shade of the skyscrapers on Daly Plaza, and the wind
3: was often... uh, blasting across the plaza yeah it was one of those experiences that was so miserable it was actually kind of fun like we, you know it was like this team of people yeah, all like experiencing you know going out and trying to juggle in, you know 35 degree weather that had like the mist of a fountain blowing across the stage making your hands like numb and but yeah we had a good time out there you didn't learn any glove
1: tech while you were Doing this, <laughs> we tried a couple different glove options, but juggling with gloves just does not feel right. Yeah, like yeah, yeah you it it a run. lot. Yeah, like and acrobatics
3: and stuff, no problem yeah. with the thin glove. But the and juggling we weren't doing—you know—it wasn't like simple, simple juggling. We were doing like a five-minute act of like all our concentrated best juggling, <laughs> <skills> circus-style <laughs> juggling to music. So it wasn't.
2: Yeah, and the last three minutes with the wind chill, <laughs> you yeah. really feeling
1: it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, or not feeling it, as so the case may be. <laughs> can't
3: feel your fingers. But the, essentially, the gist of those first few years are that we worked very little outside of like, some amusement park yeah. work in the summers. Um, we were basically just not working that much mm. or, and making very little money. And a friend of ours, uh, Sam Johnson, who had gone through Circus Smircus before us, he was a bit older than us, But we had met through Circus Smirkus, a very talented uh, slack wire walker. I mean, he was riding a unicycle on the slack wire, juggling five clubs and pressing handstands on the slack wire. I mean, he was top-notch, performer. And he had gotten some work down in Florida through a buddy of his. He was a welder as well. And this friend of his had brought him down to the Keys to help him weld and build this house he was building down there. and why he was down there of course he went out to Mallory Square down in Key West and saw the street performing scene going on and I mean he's just a real people person he gets along with everyone and just enjoys interacting with people so when he saw that you know he immediately took an interest to it Mm -hmm. and started to make his own street show and he lived up in Vermont as well so he was up in Burlington, Vermont and then for years he was sort of the main street performer in Burlington, Vermont. Okay. Um, and, you know, we were good friends with him and he said, hey, you guys got to write your own show. And that was sort of the beginning of our street performing. He said, come up to Vermont, watch what I do, take notes on my show, which is something that no other street performer would ever say to anyone I ever. Was, I was going <laughs> to say. It was just sort of unbelievably sort of generous approach to like, really getting up started he said of course I don't want you to doing parts of my show where I am yeah but I also want you guys because you have so much talent as far as your skills go and I want you to know what it feels like to be doing successful street show bits yeah as you're starting out so that you can develop your own material around it um and not have to spend the amount of years that it can take mm-hmm. um so he was just super helpful in that way you know he really helped us get get started in that first summer street performing we would drive up to vermont for you know we do a three-hour drive up to burlington vermont every <laughs> every friday and during the week we were coaching at a, a kid's uh, circus camp okay so we were you know from eight to three we were we're these little Is there anything that's going to m-
1: motivate you to become a good street performer? It's <laughs> coaching at a circus. <laughs> we
2: were each getting, I, I
3: think, $300 a week to, for, to be there five days a week from eight to three. Okay. Holding these little kids up on rolling gloves and whatnot. Yeah, getting your shins bruised. Um, and then we would drive up on the weekend to Burlington and do... You know like 10 street shows over the course of the weekend we were just on little camping mats and a spare room in someone's apartment up there a friend and so that summer is when we kind of yeah got got the first taste of how miserable it can be and how amazing it can be as well and it was such a tame pleasant environment to learn in i mean church street is so friendly yeah just narrow little pedestrian street up there in vermont and the people are really friendly. There's not a ton of acts. There's mm-hmm. not a huge amount of competition. And yeah, it's a great spot to just to learn because
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't feel the pressure of other acts sitting around watching you like on those pitches. Many of them around the world, where it's you know ten acts rotating one pitch, yeah. and all the experienced people yeah, sitting there watching us waste, waste
3: valuable time <laughs> trying to figure out. <laughs> How what dumb is? your jokes that you think are genius are. <laughs> yeah. So yeah,
1: I mean it was a blast. It's you know going out and doing that first show is. It's everyone that's ever street performed. It's a huge step to take. Just yeah, yeah, breaking the ice for the first time. Uh, I don't have any super vivid memories from
3: the first show. Just I the, the nerves just the beforehand. General, yeah. I, I remember. One of the things uh, I remember yeah. is that we had come up with this like water spitting gag where we were <laughs> pretending to do like a fire breathing bit and Tobin would take like a big like mouthful of from this like big, looked like a fuel animal. container. You know, and then I would keep interrupting him and for whatever reason he would keep spraying it out everywhere. And then <laughs> in the last one he ended up swallowing it all in. It was this whole bit we had and I just remember this one food vendor who was right next to the pitch coming up to us after it was like our first or second day of doing this show spraying (laughs) the fuel everywhere it wasn't fuel it was just water and she came up to us and was just incensed and saying that the mist from the what she thought was fuel was getting all over her food stand and (laughs) and, uh, you know do you know how bad that is for you what you're doing (laughs) that was one of my only memories is just enraging this food vendor with what we thought was this hilarious Bet that is no longer in our show and honestly it probably
1: would have been a great bit had we continued to keep it in our show and worked on it but we just got scared off by yeah, the yeah. food vendor that for you know being so timid being out there for the first time and yeah. we let her in fairness to- i, I still wouldn't it. want to have spit mist on my
2: food yeah <laughs> no you or otherwise no <laughs> i totally agree <laughs>
1: That, that part is fair enough but yeah. there are many pitches that you're yeah. far enough away that you wouldn't be missing somebody's yeah, sausage yeah. cart <laughs> that's great
2: <laughs> so it sounds like you guys really uh, kind of embodied the keep your overhead low and work
1: on your craft for these uh, these early years oh, f- to the extreme probably yeah. I mean, especially like he was mentioning briefly those first couple years doing circus I mean we literally got an apartment with the four of us jugglers, uh, another uh, friend of ours, John Stork, who's a acrobat, mm-hmm. uh, martial artist, and we—it was an unfurnished apartment because it was a long-term rental. It wasn't like a short-term rental. Okay. Um, and so all we got, we bought like futons. Yeah, we each got like an eighty-dollar <laughs> futon. We raided the convenience stores uh, back alley and got the milk.
3: Oh, the, yeah, yeah we'd do yeah. milk crate raids at night and, and then steal the milk shelving. crates and then we'd yes. either tie them together depending on what we were building or just stack them up and make shelving and chairs and stools and little tables and stuff out of milk crates that works
1: yeah and That's it was that. great i mean you, like we weren't yeah. missing anything you know, in yeah. our minds you know we were having the time of our lives training all day and we'd come home and uh david his sister who was performing with us at the time and then uh this guy, Mike Forbes, who was, uh, at that point, being our fourth uh, person in the club passing act, we were all super into the card game hearts.
3: Okay. And I don't so don't we'd we play cards for hours and hours. And <laughs> <anything>. So, <laughs> so was, between
1: circus and cards and eating, that pretty much took up clearly our... Clearly, before we knew about uh, Settlers of Catan.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> the board game revolution. Yeah. yeah. So what uh, what would you say are some of your, uh, your biggest influences, I mean, aside from... Uh, aside from your early mentor
1: there yeah number one in the street performing world would have been sam johnson yeah we mentioned and then uh jackie davis who got us started at the very beginning yeah with just circus and Uh, then
3: we took other little parts of our show came from other circus influences you know we have a, a a bit in our show that's where we have a kid kind of chasing after a dollar in circles and we're turning mm. in circles and Tobin's up on my shoulder and this whole little sort of yeah, that's a good one. chase bit that we developed and that came out of um, a circus clown that we had worked with Okay. who had this routine with a broom and a hat and the hat would end up on the end of the broom and he would have a kid on stage trying to tell him where the hat was okay. and you know he'd be holding the broomstick up and the hat would be way up in the air and the kid would point at it and when he looked up, he would lower the broomstick back, and so he wouldn't see it. And then the kid would point behind him, and he would turn around, and of course, the, yeah. the hat was moving with him, and it became this whole, I mean, it was this It was this wonderful, wonderful little bit with yeah. this kid, and just the responses it would get out of the audience, the laughter, and it would go on and on, and the longer that the kid couldn't get him to figure out that the hat was oh, right yeah, there on yeah. the broomstick, all the kids in the audience would be yelling out, and it just became... Sort of more and more of a thing, and we were, when we were writing our street show. Initially, we were trying to figure out how can we emulate something with that kind of feel. So some of our stuff definitely came directly out of the circus world as well, as far as inspirations specifically for our show. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, no, I've seen that bit work for uh, felt like ten minutes a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and I think then also a huge turning point for us. Uh, as far as street performing goes, was going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Okay. In Scotland, yeah. Um, What year Uh, did you uh, go there? Our first uh, fringe was 2007. Okay, so we did 2006 summer. We did our very first street shows up in Burlington. Yep. and another little town in Massachusetts. Um, And that winter we went went down to Key West. That winter we went to Key West for the first time. And we met uh, Todd Various. Yep. And... uh, He's an American, but he moved to uh, Edinburgh, yep, uh, with his wife, and he's like, "You gotta, if you're a street performer, you have to come to the Fringe Festival. That's <laughs> not an option." <laughs> uh, and like,
3: uh, yeah, I guess we have to go to the Fringe Festival. Yeah, and he was right. right. Yeah. I mean, just the you know the breadth of the different types of shows that you can take in there, mm-hmm. you know, the indoor theater shows and outdoor street shows. Yeah, I mean that really opened our eyes to a whole another world of possibility and
1: mm.
3: you know uh, i mean another influence or turning point for us that i should mention is we were up performing a canada day so we drove up to uh ottawa. we were up in ottawa okay uh, for canada day and we bumped into dynamite who we had never met before okay all right and that was a big change for us because we had been going down to key west for Maybe a couple of years already at that point, okay. and seeing a lot of shows that had were more sort of edgy, a little bit aggressive, yeah, you know, sort of more modeled in the sort of gazo direction where it was sort of more pointed comedy, and yeah and seeing Dynamite do his show was pretty eye opening for us. It was the first time we had seen someone doing a completely different model yeah. of what is possible. He just had this sort of radiant positivity coming off <laughs> of him during his show. And it you know, we were like, Whoa, this is way more what we feel like. We don't want to be this sound like this grumpy, aggressive older man type of vibe. Like that yeah. didn't suit us and we were somehow definitely heading a little bit in that direction because that's what everyone we had seen was doing. And so then seeing dynamite, we were like, whoa, there's this whole other possibility Mm -hmm. of how we can present ourselves and, um, you know, the way in which we can think about ourselves when we're performing. And so that was sort of the start of other acts really sort of influencing Mm -hmm. our actual approach to street performing. And then, like Tobin said, when we went to the Fringe Festival, you know, of course we saw a whole... Wide array of people yeah. doing from silent shows to you know clown shows that were yeah and
1: another huge thing happened to our show the first year in Edinburgh is that our first iteration of our street show um, one of the main props in it was a eight foot A frame ladder okay um, and we we're like oh there's such a great prop uh, anytime we fly somewhere we don't need to bring it with us we just Find a hardware store and buy one. Yeah, that's we like no, were a genius. We're not going to
3: travel with a big, tall unicycle or a rolling globe or some annoying prop.
1: It's a little harder to
2: find A-frame ladders the, than you think. This is, <laughs> this is exactly what we found out. This is a North American <laughs> thing. Yeah. We build things.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had no idea that that was the case until we showed up in Edinburgh the day before we were starting shows. And we go to the hardware store. We're like, hey, do you have an A-frame ladder? I'm like, no, oh, we'll take you to the ladder department and... The closest thing to an A-frame ladder is like a three-step steps to rail <laughs> with a railing around it. It's like, if we were doing a grandma show, this would be perfect. Um, but so we're like, oh. Okay, we went to a couple other shops. No, they just don't have them. They're not a thing. Telling me there's no Home
3: Depot there. Yeah, no. no. I mean, they even have Home Depot-like stores, but they don't carry. <laughs> I mean, even to get a regular ladder is difficult over there because it's not like all the houses are built out of wood. Yeah, and need painting and maintenance. Yeah, pretty uh, much you know, window like, washing.
1: It seemed like was the only. It's a thing lot of stone really buildings. Using.
3: So we yeah. ended up going to. I think it was like a window washing specialty store for like window washers and. Yeah. Whatnot, and they had an extension ladder, and it was the day before we, our show started. <laughs> we're like, let's just get this, and we'll figure something out. And you know, so we got a little. It's probably like a twenty-foot extension ladder.
1: Yeah. Um. And, and with the tricks we were doing with the A-frame ladder at the time, I would balance it on my chin. Yeah. You know, opened out and looked kind of cool, and then David would do. Um, the flag handstand like is our finale now up yeah. on the uh, uh, extension ladder. And then he would also do a handstand on top and he'd go up and we'd pass torches from the top to the bottom. And okay. So it was just kind of used throughout the show yeah. more. Um, but it wasn't even the finale of our show. We used standing on head as the finale of our show at that point.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. when we got the extension ladder, Tobin was still balancing out on his chin earlier and then still before the finale... Um, I would go up and Tobin would gather four people out of the audience and they would just hold the base of the ladder. And the first day we did it, we didn't extend it at all. Okay. So my hands were like on the same rung as their hands at the bottom. (laughs) My top hand was at the top of the ladder. Okay. And I just did a little flag, came down. That's it. And over the course of the fringe, we went up a rung, up a rung, up a rung, up a rung. By the end of that fringe, and we have pictures of Tobin with three other guys holding the base still holding ladder. the base yeah I'm up, like 20 feet in the air <laughs> it was terrifying I, mean, I think more or... for us than for him maybe cuz he <laughs> didn't know how
1: sketchy it was <laughs> Was nobody using ropes at this fringe yeah. <laughs> i mean people were and that's what you know uh, gave us the idea you know seeing the pole shows so we uh, wanted uh, to, to do God. something di-
3: we wanted to do something different at the time we were like let's and that's Tobin had been holding the A frame ladder so it just sort of naturally followed and we progressed into it one rung at a time yeah. and I mean, there's some great pictures of me it way honest, out there. It honestly looks way cooler without the ropes. I believe Because it. Yeah. The, visual,
1: the ropes kind of break the ladder halfway up. Yeah. Whereas just guys at the bottom and then the ladder shooting straight up out of that with David flagging yeah. off the top. It looked awesome. awesome.
3: Yeah. I mean, you didn't want had, to do that for a whole career. <laughs> yeah. You know, after that first fringe, basically we had a formatting problem now because this is the second to last thing happening in our show. And it looks super sketchy and crazy. And I'm way up there. Far the yeah, most spectacular. And like, once that's yeah. over with and we come down and bring the ladder down, we were losing a lot of people. It was like a major turnover point in our audience. Gotcha. Because we were going from that to getting our kid volunteer and doing the whole routine that culminates in Tobin standing on my head. Yeah. Because we wanted our finale to involve both of us. But yeah. we realized we got to figure something out to deal with this. And that was probably the biggest change that ever happened in our show is when we... Move the, because we do small incremental changes typically. We never Mm -hmm. do big changes. But this one was like, we got to figure out how to get both of us on the ladder and move it to the finale. Yeah. Because it's not, it wasn't working structurally. And uh, so, yeah, we had seen pole shows, but, you know, we had an extension ladder, so it needs to be able to go up and down. Yeah. So we figured out that we could just put the rope, we just messed around and said, hey, let's put a rope through, you know, the top rung on the piece that doesn't move. And then we'll be able to slide the ladder up above that. Yeah. And we just did it in our backyard with like, Tobin's parents and a couple neighbors. And that was actually... By far the worst people to <laughs> have hold <pulled> you up. Yeah, <laughs> <from> the <ladder. laughs> because they're all terrified. I don't have your parents ever help you with that. Um, and yeah, we tried it out a couple times and thought, okay, this is going to work. And put both of us up there doing the finale. And I mean, that was a, a huge jump in our earning power as well yeah just the restructuring and having the show kind of crescendo to a peak yeah made you know we yeah and we set the 50 again more money per show with yeah. nothing else
1: changing yeah and we change like the ladder it was set up now for the whole second half of our show mm-hmm. you just see this ladder shooting up and you have your four guys holding the ropes yeah it's really so, it's a heck of a pull yeah it's of a nice like, a how nice how, talk how tall is this one it's a 24-foot extension ladder, so the top rung is at 20 feet. Okay. Yeah, 20, 21 feet. Yeah. 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 So it's up there. Yeah, it's definitely sure. like even when we're doing the ground stuff earlier in the show, from a distance you see that
3: ladder sticking up out of a crowd of people, and it's definitely intriguing. Yeah, hint of
2: things to come. Totally.
3: Yeah. yeah, and generally people don't mind that we're not, that we have it set up for so long without do anything, doing anything with it. Yeah. Because coming from our background of, of circus work, our show has... You know we try and maintain a decent amount of skills in our show like we it goes one skill to the next which is yeah. actually an early challenge for us as we had so many things that could be set up as a finale of a show throughout our show that we had a lot of sort of weird transitions that we had to learn to segue smoothly into the next part of our show mm-hmm. without being sort of great points for people to Walk away, or you yeah, know we definitely struggled with multiple walk-off points after each
1: big trick. People were like happy they'd seen something, yeah, yeah. But, too and many we choices. didn't have quite the yeah. you know the through line yet, and just that ladder going up masked a lot of those problems. Yeah, it held all together us to a little more. more.
3: Just keep doing the tricks that we enjoy doing. Yeah, I mean, still our show is not an ideal format for a street show. We're up and down a bunch and have a bunch of bigger tricks earlier in the show and but we've found a way to sort of make it stick together
1: and another intriguing story about the ladder is so now we've been using the extension ladder probably for seven years or something okay and we're like we want to do more up high you know some of the you know we only do the finale up high Mm -hmm. like if we did a few more minutes before the finale up high our crowd can you know get that much bigger or whatever and more people
3: can see those tricks up there. So we do a double plunge trick, yep. where um, Tobin you know, like wraps his arms around my chest, and then both her legs are sticking straight out to the side. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Um, and that's just like a warm up trick in our show at this point.
1: And we're like, if we get a custom ladder built with handholds up top, we can do that trick up top, and it'll look like a huge kind of T at the top of the ladder. Oh, uh, be uh, fun. And we're like. Uh, amazing let's get it done we met this guy in chicago who's uh, uh was a, a welder and he could weld aluminum okay uh, and he made us this great ladder that broke down into like four foot lengths that all fit into snowboard
3: bags so we oh, could fly perfect. anywhere in yeah. the world with it yeah no problem yeah we spent a small fortune getting this thing <laughs> yeah beautifully welded yeah when all was said there's and there's done, band, band. it was about four four grand probably with the bags five and a half okay maybe five with and a half the bags
1: Bags and everything once we were all said and done. And we had two sections that made it go up to, I think it was six sections in total. We only ever used it uh, at four. Because they were four and a half feet each or something like that. We are still around like the 18 feet, to 20 yeah, foot yeah. mark. Uh, so we use it for a full year uh, doing that double plunge yeah. and then doing our finale. And we're now doing the flag on opposite sides. Yeah. Because uh, it's perfectly straight And it had uh, this kind of foot structure Down at the bottom An X yeah. Kind of to support it So it could freestand With two sections on it It could freestand without anyone Once we had the uh, Third and fourth section on We had the ropes And guys having to hold it Yeah. And then definitely They had to hold it When we went up to do the tricks But it What was intriguing is We started having our Walk-off problems again After we did tricks <laughs> Like we're like, why is this happening? Yeah, our shows end, were just so much harder to hold together. We're, you know, doing these two awesome tricks up there, but our show's been flatter getting to that point that yeah. it's not helping us at all. Yeah. Uh, we're struggling with walk off. And so we did a whole year trying to make it work with that yeah. ladder, trying to figure it out. And we just couldn't do it. People didn't relate to this circus prop because it started looking too much like a prop. Yeah. And everybody is freaked out by it. Regular old extension ladder that you go to clean your gutters with. Yeah, it so
2: looks like we're doing something <laughs> that we should not be doing with it. Everybody right. has a sketchy ladder exactly at their house. Or, <laughs> yeah, and they
1: have that experience where they almost fell off that one time, or their dad did fall yep. off, or whatever it is. Like people have that, like, whoa, this is not okay. Yeah. And that not okay feeling works really well as a hook.
3: Yeah. To, yeah. It's just a relatable prop having yeah. that extension ladder. Everyone has that connection to it. Yeah, so we yeah we made it about a year, and now that
1: ladder is just sitting in the loft <laughs> at my parents' yeah. house. So
3: occasionally, if we have a one-off gig or something, we might have a little bit of fun that. We have to fly yourself. to, yeah. you know, then we'll take that ladder if we if we need to fly with all our props. Yeah.
2: So you're not gambling on extension ladders and flights exactly. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, we,
1: because we would sometimes have. Uh, Gig Sorsa extension ladder for us. Like it was just a one-off and we didn't have time to get it ourselves. Okay. We've ended up on a couple pretty sketchy extension ladders. <laughs> yeah. like, this was bought 45 years ago. And it wasn't even that great a ladder when they bought it. <laughs> yeah.
2: That's great. So you guys do, um, I mean, I've seen you mostly in Key West now. Uh, do you still do any other traveling pitches or
3: or festivals these days? Or Boston is our main home base. Okay. Um, We live up in New Hampshire along the southern border, so we're not too far from Boston. Okay. It takes us about an hour and 20 minutes to get into town. Um, So, yeah, Boston is a nice pitch to have in your neighborhood like that. Um, It's pretty consistent for a large portion of the year at least. Yeah. Um, And outside of that, Key West is our only other sort of consistent yearly trip. That we do. say so do the southern and northern stretch. Yep. Yeah. Depending no, on I mean at yeah, this point, outside of
1: those two it's we only travel if it's a gig or a festival. Yeah. We won't travel to just street perform. Yeah. For the sake yeah, yeah. of street performing so much anymore. Yeah. Gotcha.
3: Yeah, we both at this point we both have young kids. Yeah. You're all. Both I have friend, a man. three and a half year old and a nine month old and Tobin has a sixteen month old. Um, so you know we like to be around home as much as possible yeah
2: of course you want to stay a little bit closer to home base here yeah yeah and the other
3: i mean we're so lucky
1: to have boston because it's a it's a great spot to street perform but also uh we have so many good friends that street perform there yeah it's a really nice spot to um be a performer
3: and be friends with the performer it's a really friendly pitch because it's all scheduled out that you know the main pitch where a lot of us work at Faneuil Hall, Quincy Market. Oh, that's lovely. They schedule it by the month, so yeah. you know when your time slot. Sorry, you just drive in, do your two shows, go home, and especially all the performers can get that along, that yeah. That yeah. Life, especially <laughs> yeah. coming
1: from Key West, which is really you know we did that little bit on Burlington, but then we were in Key West and yeah, feeling that animosity that we
3: felt from the older performers and like not <laughs> feeling welcome so in this many saddest. years. It was like. <laughs> you know now actually we get along with most of the other performers in Key West yeah. pretty well and yeah. there are you know there is some camaraderie down there now yeah. but i mean you came for the
1: first time this past winter right. did you feel at least somewhat welcome or what, well, I, mean, I felt reasonably
3: welcome yeah. but yeah i mean I also yeah. Don't pay attention yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good way I got enough going on I guess, in my own space i guess the thing about key west that frustrates us now is that there's this structurally built-in inequality where they have this grandfather system, I mean this seniority system for how you get your spots down there, mm. and it's these buckets, you know. That, and depending which bucket you get to pull from, you get better numbers and better choices of spots for any given night. And what's frustrating about it is, at this point, the main crew of people, like us included, us included, ten out of the however many yeah. acts are down there on any given night, are all grandfathered in and all pulling out of the same bucket. And there'll be, like, one or two acts that are down there. Yourself. Yeah. You're and so you know very well. Hey, I remember who are 109. Just getting, <laughs> yeah. Right. So you're just getting the worst spot every single night. And it's like we always say to the other, like the older performers who are also grandfathered in, it's like, why not just have one bucket that everyone pulls from? And have it be sort of a feeling of, like, a shared pitch and equality. Yeah. And sure, maybe one or two nights a week you'll get a spot that you don't prefer, so you know what's the big deal? yeah, and it would make everyone feel more welcome and you know and I and understand like anywhere where there is a sense of entitlement,
1: it breeds more animosity, yeah.
3: Yeah, And we do understand that there are people that live down there year-round and maintain yeah. the pitch and yeah. have been there for 30 years or whatever, sort of keeping the organization running and supporting it. And there's something to that. Yeah. And there is something yeah. to that. And so, you know, we've even discussed, like, what could be options for, like, what if there was just, like, a first, your first 60 days performing there, regardless of when or how you did them, your first 60 days, they would just be one separate bucket so that if people are just trying to travel down at peak season... Mm-hmm. You don't just get the, the best spot yeah. when there are people who are maintaining the pitch, and yeah. but after that, it's like, come on, do you really have to wait? five... And when we were doing it, it was ten years to make it <laughs> into the grandfather bucket, <laughs> which really seems like a go
2: away policy. Yes, yes, it is, and <laughs> so you know, it was it, it was the year policy. that
3: we got grandfathered in. Finally, I managed to write up a new set of rules that more closely matched the artists. System for seniority, yeah, which you know I, I wanted to just make it to one bucket at that point, but I talked to various artists and various members of the nonprofit who would get to vote on what I was yeah. presenting, and the overwhelming thing that I was hearing is there's no way that it will pass if you make it down to one bucket, but if you bring it in line to yeah. what the artists are, which is more like a five years to seniority, yeah, situation, that that actually has a chance. Of passing, so yeah. that's what I ended up doing that year at the general membership meeting. I presented, you know, a, a revised street performer mm-hmm. guideline that brought it down to to five years. So that's what it is now. But still, five years is it's, it's kind of ridiculous. It's a stretch. It's a you it's know? a bit of a commitment for
2: sure. Yeah, yeah. I, uh,
1: can yeah. I mean, there are many other deterrents to performing in Key West, anyways, for a lot of performers. Yes. just in the fact that you can't use amplification. Yeah, which means you can't use music. Yeah. so that right there makes it so a lot of performers yeah. it's not their desired
3: spot to and start it's a perform. tricky situation that there's only three hours yeah. three hour window when everyone is trying to get one or two shows in yeah and the expense of, of being <laughs> Key West by
2: itself <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've got uh, to I know mental. that one firsthand. yeah thank, thank god for bible bill yeah <laughs> <laughs> and his parking lot yeah. but uh, <laughs> no I, I do think though that uh, that uh, Key West situation I mean it's great that you actually have a membership board a vote in this process I mean, oh, absolutely they've uh, done a lot that's a standout of
1: uh, organizing just to make it so people can continue to perform there and sell their uh, mm-hmm. art and that's another cool thing about the um, artisans there is they are all handcrafted and sold by the person that yeah. creates the art um, and so that's a pretty unique thing to have yeah,
2: yeah, it's totally. It's a nice, uh, nice older slice of uh of how things how things are done. Yeah. And I, I yeah. do a lot of fairs, and you do a lot of fairs as well.
1: So yeah, I oh yeah, in the, the fair mean, market in the U.S., it's junk plastic from China, and yeah. you know, elsewhere around the world that's being sold instead of yeah, yeah. actually nice or whatever L- MLM stuff. scheme is uh, yeah. the hottest thing this
2: year, candles exactly. or some right. sort of oil or whatever yeah. else, yeah. <laughs> No, it's nice to see that not happening there. So, uh, what um, have you got any favorite memories of performing? I mean, we've gone through Edinburgh and, uh, and things like that. Any shows that stand out as like, that was my best or that was my worst? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at each other. I mean, all right. As far We're as to
3: start. bad shows go, there. there's a fun memory that both of us have of it was actually the first winter we went down to Key West okay and our first night out on mallory square and of course we were over like in the parking lot spot like by the band yeah like in the worst spot and we spent about an hour and a half trying to stop one person to just get (laughs) anyone to like even stop and watch us we had our torch lit we're up on our little a-frame ladder we're yelling out showtime we're doing everything you know like we're stretching and doing some handstands and just working Clearly so <laughs> hard. yeah with like desperation just like dripping off of us and for an hour and a half we do not stop one single person and we're sitting there on the bench by the parking lot, kind of dejected mm-hmm. you know ready to pack up our stuff and just like and this lady comes down w- approaches us and says, you know I'm staying at the hotel behind the parking lot over there and that's my balcony up there and I've been sitting up here. And I've been watching you guys, and you've really been trying. And she gives us $10. (laughs) (laughs) And we just kind of glanced at each each other, and Mm -hmm. we're like, I don't know that street performing is for us. (laughs) Like, we should just go back home to New Hampshire, back to doing circus work. Like, this is, you know, all we can make in our whole first night down here is $10 of sympathy money. (laughs) You know, and then, you know, of course, we then managed to scrape together a show later that night another act down there the sardine family circus okay. who at the time was sort of the big act yeah in Massive. key west you know huge huge group act mm-hmm. super powerful and we had been hanging out a little bit with them training in the park in the mornings and stuff like that and they sent over their their last crowd after sunset they said hey there's two new performers they're yep. new to street performing but they've got a lot of talent go check them out and you know, we yeah. made like sixty or eighty bucks or something, and thought, "Okay, we'll give this a shot. Like, <laughs> we'll give it a whirl." And of course, it got better from there. Yeah, we learned a lot quickly. But that first night was pretty memorable, yeah. as far as lows go. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can, uh, I can uh, understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, as far as uh, high note, I think the one that stands out. The most to me is our first uh, show on Parliament Square at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, at prime time. It's like you know Saturday mid afternoon. It's one of it's probably the best street pitch in the world. That's in yeah. Edinburgh at the Fringe festival. Yeah. In that yeah. it, oh. it's uh, a courtyard, so you have this gorgeous cathedral stone cathedral mm-hmm. on inside. side. I believe it's the courthouse building behind you. Also, maybe the Parliament full, building, I guess, full, uh yeah, Parliament. Uh, they're at least a four-story stone building. That's on that and another. So you have this nice three-sided, uh, you know, backdrop, and yeah. it bounces the sound. Um, yeah, the acoustics are amazing. You have this; it slightly slopes up away from the pitch, so everyone can keep being able to see. Yeah, uh, and yeah, just doing our finale when we we're getting everyone clapping. And it's just bouncing off the walls, you know, a few, you know, whatever, 500 people in there or whatever, you know, it's just filled up and just that sound, I got goosebumps just all over. (laughs) Uh, And so that was like, that definitely stands out uh, as a highlight show. And that was only in your second year, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it felt like a, and I think that's part of what stands out so much because clearly that was not the norm. Yeah. Yet, you know, we were not doing these great shows all the time. We were still having struggle shows, and you know, we yeah. were definitely getting better.
3: Um, but yeah, I it was a, it bad. was that was the beginning of us sort of having shows where we really did kind of get the audience on Just our side, and win them people. over yeah. earlier in the show, and have more time to really perform with them and have mm-hmm. a good time with them. And um, so that I I remember yeah. that as well. And then I guess
1: the other show that really stands out as weird as another uh bad show unfortunately but uh <laughs> and uh, just a bad scenario in that we were um performing uh at quincy market
3: uh, in boston in okay. boston the day that the marathon bombing happened oh wow. and, yeah and we started a show maybe 10 minutes before the bombing happened i believe we st- were starting just before the bombing happened yeah. And the first 10 minutes of the show, we were like, this is going to be a great show. It was building and building. This is going to be a fun one. And then for the next 20, 25 minutes of our show, our audience was just leaving. Yeah, And, and ever, no one said anything to, to language, us. It just went all like, quiet. Families were getting up and leaving from the front row. It wow. was the weirdest, most surreal experience we had ever had as performers. I mean, we were... Very established at that point. We yeah, were you were Yeah, right. It's not like that. But yeah. for nine, And it wasn't 10 even years. normal walk-off. It was like eerie almost. Yeah, yes. just sort of in total yeah. silence, families getting up and like parents like shuffling their kids away. And yeah, and then so we get to the end of our show, you know, with uh, maybe
1: a, a hundred people left around us, a scraggly little crowd, and we're hatting. And this little, probably a ten-year-old girl comes up, gives us a tip, and she's like, you shouldn't make that joke about the marathon anymore. A bomb just went off at the marathon. Wow! And we're like, and it was coming from a little kid, so I was like, I, I, I didn't even know, like, really, what she was talking yeah. about. Yeah. I mean, one, like, what are you going to say when that, somebody tells you that, anyways? A but ten-year-old But just like, at a girl. ten-year-old, old like, yeah. okay, she must be. And confused. it's not like our
3: marathon joke was anything to do with violence or anything. No, and we just have a mention of oh, the marathon. The yeah. marathon. When we you know, run
1: around in the two high, like, yeah. if you think this is funny, you should see us run the Boston Marathon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously being sensitive, like, she immediately, her thought went to, like, sensitivity around that yeah. subject. And um, so, you know, she told us, and then we were, you know, kind of putting our things down. We we're like, well, maybe that's why the fell. And then, obviously, other, we
3: talked to, other people people to people, in, and, and... Yeah, and security and came up and said, oh, we're stopping performances for the day, and... Yes. Yeah, so, so that was a really weird moment where it was wow. like, everyone knew something that we didn't, and we were... I because mean, our philosophy always in our show, like we would, we have never fired a crowd. We never let a crowd go. Yeah. Like if someone stops to watch us, it's because they want to see something. That's yeah. our philosophy. And you know, our show is not selective. It's not like we have a sense of humor like Gaza, where we're if we don't have people that are with us, we're going to be seeming coming across as offensive. Yeah. We don't have to do what I call a selective crowd build, where we're building the people that want to see our type of show. Yeah. Like, we're shooting at a broad target. Yeah. You know, we have material that's fun for any age group. and Yeah. Um,
1: just the, yeah, it's a weird experience having the people leaving. and Yeah. And then, I, I mean, that whole week was just a weird week to be in the city of Boston. Yeah, understandable. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was creepy. Yeah,
2: yes. Interesting security. You didn't try to stop your show a little earlier there. Yeah. I know. I didn't <laughs> know that,
3: that it had really sort of set in yet yeah. the reality of... From, the, what it meant that public yeah, spaces yeah. had what to be like, like, cleared out because be we were to go maybe home and get it's probably and
1: like three miles away in the city yeah, or two miles and yeah I'm sure like all obviously That's a lot of priority every,
3: and priority was all going there right, so it was yeah. just like whatever the rest yeah. of the city will figure it out right and, right. and we did end about 20 minutes after yeah. the incident it was so it wasn't that much time for people to adjust
1: but yeah in this day and age when people are getting news right to their phones and you know like even 15 years ago we would have finished our show nobody would have known until yeah you know quite a bit
3: later oh yeah that's what I was getting at yeah. it's just that we had you know like when shows start turning sour or something seems off like what we always do is like we buckle down on like being positive and like performing more and like yeah. trying to give more to the audience to give them time to relax into the show and yeah sort of join with us and that's part of what made it so bizarre is that you know we didn't just give up on the show we were trying harder and harder to like why are we not connecting with this yeah audience that's here today like what are we doing wrong people are just walking away and then uh, of yeah, course we some things you can't fight no, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, <laughs> that was seems not like a, one of them yeah. Yeah. not a battle we were going to win okay
2: yeah, I was wondering, uh, I was going to ask you what, uh, what your philosophy on street performing was because I've seen you, I've seen you in Key West and you definitely have a, a different type of show. You're not nearly, well, you don't have the same level of aggressivity that I've seen a lot of shows uh, need, including my own down there. Uh, but I've also seen you at fairs and whatnot. And uh, hearing from the fair folk around here, they're always amazed that you're able to keep people as long as they can. Uh, as long as you can without uh, without music and
3: stuff. So that's uh, that's one part of your philosophy is, I guess, you yeah, find well, a crowd. And I mean, yeah, and having no music was just developed because we Necessity. essentially developed our act in Key West. That's where the heart of our act was developed. Yeah. So we didn't develop it with music. But yeah, I mean, that's just sort of, you know, any street performer knows that when you have a su- successful show, there's a certain point in the show where something clicks into place where it's like the audience relaxes and they become it's like for the audience you become their show Mm -hmm. it's like a personal thing now and there's this different atmosphere and um you know the sooner we all know as street performers that the sooner we can get to that point where people are comfortable and relaxed and enjoying themselves Mm -hmm. and enjoying the show you know the more money you can make and just the more fun you're going to have doing your show yeah and doesn't matter how good you are, there are some shows where you only get to that turning point right near the end of your show, where people sort of finally become a, your audience and you become their show. And there are some shows, I mean, still to this day, after all these years of performing, where we just never get there. It's like we just keep trying and trying yeah. and trying. And there are some shows where, before you even start, people are sitting there waiting eagerly and laughing and already right on your and side Giving you the benefit of the doubt right out of the gate you know mm-hmm. typically that's only at a festival or something where yeah. you have that kind of response but and our philosophy just kind of developed because we learned over the years that there will be shows where it feels like you're failing you're failing you're failing you're failing and then something you reach that point like five minutes before the show ends like something happens with your volunteer or in your show that doesn't usually happen and gets everybody laughing and You turn that corner right before the end of your show Mm. and it it can still be, I mean, more importantly than making good money is that it can still be like a really nice memory that you have of that show. I mean, at this point for us, a successful street show is not have anything to do with how much money we make. We know over the course of a year, we're going to make enough money to live. That's not an issue. You know, we feel like it's a good show if we finish the show. And want to come out and do another show again. Yeah. You know, if you do a show where it's like, oh, you feel defeated afterwards and it sucked all your energy out of you, yeah. that's a bad show. Who cares how much money you got paid to do it or what the situation is. It's like the good ones are the ones where yeah. even if there's only 10 people watching you, you have a blast. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what some people might not realize is you can have
1: just as much fun with 20 people as you can with 500. Yeah. If the dynamic is there. Yeah. And feel like going out and doing a show again right after it, or the 500 that might be around the next minute. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I guess being at the fair here, we have had that comment: like, how how do you do a show without music? (laughs) uh, Yeah, comedy is basically, I think, the answer. It would be weird, like if you just did a skill show. Yeah, uh, you know, and didn't talk and tell jokes. It would be very awkward without music. Yeah. And you probably wouldn't hold a crowd. But if if you can tell jokes and intermix comedy and uh, audience interaction through for, you know, the half hour. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, it works as, uh kind of a similar
2: way. So I've heard uh, there's always a lot of talk these days about... Sort of the death or the, the change uh, in street performance these days what, with lack of cash in pockets and the rise of digital currency and also just attention spans and all that jazz. What, uh,
3: where do you guys see street performing in 10 years? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, as far as the cash thing goes, I, don't, I think that the technological answers to that are already yeah. starting and they're going to become more and more common. And it's really not going to be a big deal. Okay. You know, like already we have a dip jar, which is a credit card collection device for the end of our street shows. And, you know, we don't get a huge amount of tips. A lot of the places we work, people bring cash anyways because they know that there are other things that they'll need cash for. But still, I mean, we'll get anywhere from, uh, you know, one or two dips up to like nine or ten dips a show. Yeah. Yeah. and, and so, Venmo is also a, a and decent, yeah. Venmo, another super easy, the, yeah. virtual money. Yeah. So you know, as far as that goes, I think there's easy solutions in place. The distractibility and social media and people filming you and watching their your whole show through their phone. Yeah. That's, I think, a bigger concern. That's yeah. harder to when a third <laughs> of your audience is not actually fully present with your show. Yeah, it really changes. There's only so yeah. many jokes you can make about someone and their phone before it's like you just have to carry on with your show. And you yeah. definitely I think felt that impact I, more I, than anything else. Yeah. I have to imagine that right now
1: it's hard for me to imagine people using their phones more in 10 years than they are right now. Yeah. I yeah. could be totally wrong. It does seem like a <laughs> saturation. But it's like, like everyone, everyone has, has one now yeah. and yeah. you you know everyone has data now so you get your Because I think that's part of the biggest thing is even myself, like who I, we are street performers and I want to respect shows. And when I go to a show, I don't look at my phone. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, if I'm at a show, like I was at Lucian's show in Boston the other day, enjoying it. And he's a newer performer. So I was watching, trying to like think of things to give him tips on. And, you know, my phone vibrated maybe, you know, three, four times throughout the, and the urge to go look at it (laughs) is so strong. Yeah. Like, you really have to be like, no, I don't need to look at that right now. Yeah. But most people don't stop themselves because they're just, you know, they're just there. And, um, so if everyone, say everyone in your audience even gets buzzed just five times in the half hour. Yeah. That's probably even a low estimate for many people's phones.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, and
1: they,
3: it can yeah. have a more, it's kind of a subtle effect as well because, I mean, once you get to a certain point in your show... If it's a really good show and everyone has, you've turned that corner and everyone's on your side and it's going really well, you'll see there's not many people engaging with their phones. If they are, it's to film you or take a picture, um, which is still in some ways engaging with the show. But it can take longer to get to that point where you win people over when there is that constant, you know, because you know how it is being a performer yourself. If you have that little pocket of one or two people, or one or two groups that have like a great out loud laugh. Yeah. Or it can spark the whole audience. Yeah. As that you know, as you keep hearing that one laugh or, you know, that enthusiastic clapper or whatever, yeah. those little seeds can spread throughout the whole audience and bring the whole audience onto your side. And, you know, the the more people are distracted and the more your audience isn't cohesive and focused, um, the longer it can take to yeah. to reach that point. So it has sort of an overall Kind of subtle impact on yeah on the street show, I think. And you think yeah. it's kind of reached? It sounds like you
1: think it's reached sort of a peak point, and we I'm might that's be. That's capric- my feeling. I mean, we can hope. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, we can hope. I mean, I just don't see how, unless people start wandering around cities with like VR goggles or something, you know what I mean? like then we don't even have to do our show. We just send them to this video link, and you can be in the show. But yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously it's hard to predict the future, but yeah. my... My feeling is that the cell phone thing is probably kind of plateaued okay. and it, I don't know that it'll get better in 10 years, but I don't <laughs> think it'll get that much worse. Yeah. And then the cash thing, I think kind of like David said, I, one, I think cash will still be around in 10 years. Yeah. I think it'll be a lot less, but America just seems very cash. Yeah. Pro cash. Yeah. Um, uh, like some European countries already, it's like cash is gone, basically. Yeah. Um, and I, I, so hearing from that, like Bob Besman, I don't know if he, he lives out in Utah, but yeah. Uh, Bob, Bob at Large. Yeah. Bob at Large, world. who's an awesome performer and he he always travels because there's not street performing in Kanab, Utah. Yeah. So he either <laughs> does like San Fran or Boston and goes all over and I guess he did some street performing, I think in, uh, you know, one of the, Scandinavian countries and yeah. he said it was great and he uh this was you know seven years ago or whatever and he said he heard from a friend now that it's they have really struggled to adjust um to the economy now being basically cashless mm-hmm. and it has hurt street performing a lot so it could because it's not the same like even though we do have these things in place you know credit card machine it's not the same as a whole group of people coming up and throwing cash in a bag yeah like um it doesn't have that same yeah, ritual yeah, yeah exactly like if people are venmoing like as part of like you get caught up in everyone coming forward so it's like yeah. oh yeah everyone's going forward we all have to go right but everyone looks down at their phone venmoing the then like, a oh yeah. nobody's tipping even if everyone is tipping you know, yeah but it just doesn't have that uh because part of it is that psychological thing like yeah and i feel like that part of it might get messed up um yeah, lost in translation. There. Yeah, right.
3: when you see the first
1: person walk up with the twenty, right. it's always it like, the oh, yes, yeah. yes, it's great. But no one's going to see that the person tipped you a twenty. Yeah. on Venmo, right? Or and that is what I like. I've seen
2: with the dip jar, you get you can get that little bit of a circle over yeah. that. Yeah, yes, you do but because
1: yeah, that and it has a sound it. effect. that has a little like
3: shing. Yeah, yeah. when
1: and, you, and it also it. says that it's like it's going to take ten dollars from your credit card. So it sets kind of a standard for a
3: tip. Yeah, right. You can, can set, set it to whatever amount you want. Uh, we set ours at ten, but yeah, I mean, if it really was heading in the cashless direction, you could have two or three dip jars, <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> Do yeah. like a five, ten, and twenty option and or something. From what we've heard from dip
1: jars, they're also, I mean, the U.S. is way behind on uh, tap technology with credit cards, but like you go anywhere yeah. else, I feel like now you just tap your card, and that'll make a big difference. So much easier, and that is more like coming up and dropping cash in bag. If you just have to tap a card instead of stand in line, swipe the card. Maybe it doesn't read the first time, swipe it again. Absolutely. So I think tap technology will help. Yeah. Um, What can we say here? Uh, I did want to ask you, although I think you've
2: answered this uh, fairly well, any advice you'd give uh, new street performers?
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't give up. That's number okay. one. Number yeah. one is don't give up. And
3: uh, and be, yeah. be self... I mean, what I would always advise people is to be self-critical and not to fall in love with your own material. Mm. It doesn't matter how good something is. that You, you, know, you can think something is totally genius. But yeah. street performing is immediate feedback. And you just have to accept that. Like, if you do a bit and it gets a bad response don't try doing that bit for the next five years trying to make it work. Yeah. Like you have been told by your audience whether it works or not. Rather write new material than try to keep doing... But at the same time,
1: don't give up on it after one show up. Yeah, and don't
3: give up on the idea of street performing or your underlying principles or how you're trying to fundamentally present yourself. Like those are things to pursue for sure. You can pursue those Mm -hmm. for years and get better and better at your style of performing, but... You know, just that was more directed at individual uh, ideas or jokes or something that yeah. you're trying to write. Like, it's easy to sort of get bogged down in finding ways to make a bad joke work for a few years just because <laughs> fall into a habit of it. And it's like, oh, I'll keep, you know, doing this. It's, it's not bad, but it's not getting really a response. And, you know, to have a strong street show, you know, to this day after... Many shows that Tobin and I do, we'll have little notes for each other. Like, take that one word out. How come you started saying, okay, before you start speaking? Or, you know, there's these little extra words that come in into play. Be concise. Say what you mean. Don't add extra words. Yeah, Yeah. every extra word. Every time you say, listen listen up, up, or something like that, you feel like you're getting everyone's attention to talk. But if you watch some of the best street shows out there, like, I, you know, Al is a great example, Kazam. Mm-hmm. Every time he talks, it's to either impart important information that people want to hear or because he's telling a joke. And so as he starts speaking, his audience learns and people are totally focused on him. You know, the pacing of his jokes and the way he manages to, mm. he's not saying all these other words and things that are just, tuning people out yeah like every time he's talking it's for a reason and that you know makes people completely focused and engaged in a show so yeah streamlining your language is really important yeah and you can yeah and you
1: can get yeah listen ups implied and you know after street performing for 13 years those words still creep in yeah so it's something you have to edit every few months yeah Really listen to what you're saying, and it have those words crept back in. Okay, I need to,
3: yeah, to cut them again. Yeah, and film yourself. I mean, as a two person show, we don't really have to, because for the most part, we can hear what each other are saying in a more objective manner and tell the other person, hey, you know, you're you're talking for twice as long in this segment. What's going on? But as a solo show, uh, definitely, you know, film yourself from time to time or record yourself, or have a friend that you like their opinion of. Yeah.
1: Someone that can listen
3: yeah. And yeah. also take advice from your audience. Even when someone comes up and says something that seems really annoying after the show, like they think part of your show is sexist or racist or they're offended by this or they're offended by that, our initial response to that is nearly always one of anger and frustration. Yeah. And that that person is not right, they didn't understand where I was coming from or what I was trying to say. But to let those kind of comments sit with you. Sometimes they are just someone misinterpreting something. Yeah. But there's often a kernel of wisdom in, in a comment from someone who seems like they're just being crazy or just trying to nitpick yeah. you. And to learn from those and really take them to heart and make sure that you're not in some way marginalizing parts of your audience by just thinking that you're right and other people are wrong. So to really listen to your audience, I think, is an important part of street performing. Yeah, avoid that uh, habit of dismissiveness. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Avoid building it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because ultimately, the show is for the audiences. I mean, that's the point of any street show is for the people that you're entertaining. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, the strangers on the street, they are your audience. And that those are the people that you ultimately have to listen to and are answerable to yeah they're mm-hmm. your audience and they're your boss yeah <laughs> before we wrap up
2: wrap wrap up anything comes to mind I feel like it went fairly well
1: yeah, yeah. I'm kind and of I g- like I'm, what we talked about yeah. I mean there's I'm obviously kind of g- more to talk about but yeah uh, yeah you know, we don't want it to go on forever no no and it, we have a show to do so. yeah of course yeah
2: <laughs> 90 minutes seems to be the way to go and uh, honestly I gave the interview I wanted to hear kind of as a new guy, so, um, and uh, this is what I got out of Busker Hall of Fame and Stories from the Pitch over the years, too, was a lot of these.
0: Thanks to Isaac for reaching out, and David and Tobin for lending their stories to the project. I want to take a moment to plug a Facebook Live series that's been running for several weeks now. Matt Bowden, a London-based performer and street performing advocate, has been presenting Wining On with Public Performers. Matt sets up in his houseboat with loads of wine and chats with other street performers. I'll post a link to the Facebook page in the episode notes, and we're working on getting a page up on the website where you can find the links to all of his conversations. He's chatted with some legendary performers. It's really worth watching. As always, this podcast is a labor of love, but we do need sponsorship to keep it going. So if you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast, contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of the project at patreon.com forward slash stories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. And thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping keep Busking History Alive. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not tell a friend about it and leave us a review? We'd really appreciate it. If you'd like someone to be interviewed or you feel a certain voice has not been heard, please reach out to me like Isaac did and let me know. We're doing our best to capture interviews and stories with as many performers as we possibly can. It's up to you to help fill in the gaps. So on behalf of myself, Isaac Giardin, who recorded the interview, Al Minter, who did the preliminary edit, and the rest of the team of the Busco Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Brian. Thanks for listening.